0: All right, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of New Agreements. I guess you could say this is the first of season two because we've taken a bit of a break. I went on a cycle ride, been doing some videos on Shell, and we are back today with Christian from Regen Network from the Bay Area today. How are you doing, Christian? Really good. Thanks for having me, David. Really pleased to have you. And I received an email the other week saying that you guys are in a new chapter around your platform. And it seemed like there was a real good alignment there. So I thought, let's just do this. Uh, you know, sometimes you sit around and strategize and decide it's time to do a podcast. And then sometimes you think, ah, it seems to be starting. So let's just go with the flow and uh, and make it happen. So why don't you take us back for a second? We've got some time. Why don't you just tell us where did you grow up? How did you, what is the journey that you meandered along that led you to be sitting in this chair as CEO of the network today?
1: Sure, yeah, absolutely. Um... Thanks, David. Well, interestingly enough, right when I graduated university, I told myself, I'm not going to have a career. Careers (laughs) are so 1900s, and Mm -hmm. I'm much more creative than that. I gathered a group of friends together, and we bought some property in northern Thailand. And what I imagined was that we were just going to build a few bamboo bungalows, put up some hammocks, get a margarita mixer, and call (laughs) it good. (laughs) Uh, but it turned out we needed to figure out how to grow the mangoes that would go into our margarita mixer and how to build our bamboo bungalows and so that project turned into a uh, permaculture education center natural building education center and the the panya project is what it's called it's north of chiang mai thailand it still runs to this day wow Hosting, hosting high school kids hosting permaculture design courses hosting natural building courses and and it, through that process, I got really involved in regenerative agriculture, you know, through okay. the pathway of permaculture. Well, just before you
0: go on, I'm just going to say you win the award for best intro on this podcast <laughs> out of like all the like 12, 15 people we've had that have all been amazing. You win because I, I <laughs> you're, you're living the dream there. What? Like you just... You're you're young, mid 20s, and you convinced a bunch of mates to give you a bunch of cash and go with you over there.
1: My family moved to Thailand when I was 12, Ah. so I I went through middle school and high school in Thailand, and I felt comfortable with the Thai, the Thai culture and the Thai people, and I knew that it was totally possible to move there, engage with the local community. There's some tricks to buying property in Thailand, but it's possible Mm. and make something happen. So I knew that like physical aspect of it was possible. Now getting my friends involved was an extra challenge because none of us had any money. Uh-huh. So I, I literally wrote up this seven, this seven page proposal that said, you know, in two years from now, you need to give me $2,000 and we're gonna buy the land with that. Another two years from now, you're gonna give me another $3,000. And at that point, we're going to build the infrastructure on the site. We ended up getting 11 people involved. So we had about $55,000 total to spend. And in the end, I actually ended up giving, it, giving everyone back a $1,000 because we didn't need wow. that amount of money to start.
0: And was that the amount of money needed to acquire the property and build the first huts? Or
1: y- Yeah, it was. We spent about $45,000, about half of that to acquire the property. What we did was we built earthen buildings. We've, I learned how to build adobe. I learned how to do, build cob and waddling cobs. So it cost a lot less mm. money. And was a really, really enjoyable process to bring folks in host natural building workshops and, you know, get covered in mud and build our infrastructure.
0: And, I've, and I know I'm really going into this, but I have a personal interest in it. Like, was it a requirement of your 10 friends that they also did work? Or was the requirement only that they put the money in?
1: Mm-hmm. I said, this will become whatever we make it. And so we, you need to put the money in and there's no way you're ever going to get your money back. You can't sell your share to someone. You can't transfer. That's part of the deal. We don't, that's the complexity I didn't want. But you don't have to put any time and effort in. If you never come there, that's fine. It's, it's too bad, I'd rather have you, but no. if that's what it works out, that's fine. And whoever goes there and puts in the effort and turns this place into an amazing project will receive you know, all the joy and learning and everything that comes along with that. We hosted uh, Jeff Lawton, a permaculture design teacher out of Australia for our first design course back in 2005, I believe, or 2006. You know, I didn't know who the guy was, but he's an incredible teacher. He inspired me heavily. And mm. ever since that point, my life has been wrapped up in ecological agriculture, regenerative agriculture,
0: mm. permaculture, and the economics around around the college. There must have been a moment where, okay, you've rallied your pals, you've built some huts, and it's kind of like there's a bit of creative life, but there's a it could be tailing off and there must have been a moment where it felt like, Oh, this thing's going to get established. Actually, this thing is going to find a rhythm and a flow of capital of people and finance. That's going to sustain it and let it become that permaculture hub that you're describing. And, and what was that? If there was that, what was the ingredient that kind of went, "Ah, oh, now it's, now it's really going to go long-term. I guess it's a
1: combination of, uh, the economics of hosting courses that both bring in a little bit of capital into the project, but also build the infrastructure and, mm-hmm. and build the community at the same time. Because oftentimes we would host courses where paying students would come, we would build a building with them as part of the workshop, and then they would stay, off to stay after as a volunteer for the next three months. Mm-hmm. You know? And there was really great energy you know, everybody really engaged, wake up at every morning and have a morning meeting and like, what are we doing today? Some people are in the garden, some people are in the building, some people are, um, you know, heading into town to do a shopping run, uh, you know, and then we'd have dance parties in the evenings and yeah. we, we had a lot of fun. There was definitely challenges as well, but at some point we got to a point where we were hosting about six courses a year. The project was never set out to make anybody their retirement or anything like that, but it... But what it did was those courses uh, provided enough funds so that all the people that were living there could live there throughout the year without having to spend their own money to be there. That was really, really amazing.
0: Did you live full-time? Did you live there full-time? And, and how long for? And how long of your permaculture journey, regenerative agriculture journey has been there? And and then where did you go from there then, I guess? So I lived there full-time for about five
1: years, starting in 2005. And, and I, previously, I lived in Thailand for six years in middle school and high school, as I mentioned. And then after those five years, I started tailing off my time at the Ponya Project. So. Then I spent a half a year and then I came back for just three months and then I just would come to teach a permaculture design course, check in on the community and then head out. That's part of the journey. So after living at the uh, Ponyo project and gaining a bunch of skills in permaculture, permaculture design, working with farmers in the local area and doing a little bit of regional permaculture design work, I then met up with um, Eric Tonesmeyer, who's the author of Edible Forest Gardens and the Carbon Farming Solution. I met up with Ethan Rowland, who's an incredible leader in the um, regenerative ag space. I met up with Gregory Landway, who later became my business partner on two different businesses, including the current business, mm-hmm. and a woman named Mary Johnson, who's a, um, a farm economist and um, you know, business planning for farm scale she's still very well very wrapped up in the world of uh, regenerative agriculture with green america and others we then formed a company called terra genesis international and and it was more like a collective of designers saying like hey each of us have our areas of expertise why don't we start a company start a brand and start all working under this same uh, label of terra genesis international and see what happens and that was about 11 years ago and that company is still running and going strong And it was out of that company after working with a number of natural products brands that we started uh, Regen Network. Mm, Okay.
0: So before we go Regen Network, just to establish a couple of key terms that you've, you've spun in there. We've heard about regenerative agriculture through a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you talk about permaculture, what are you specifically referring to for somebody who hasn't heard of it before?
1: Yeah, permaculture is a is a design science that that uses natural systems to benefit the, the way that humans are interacting with ecosystems and ultimately designed to reintertwine us with natural systems. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes that looks like, you know, how do you design your backyard and your living space so that it rather than working against against nature like trying to fight off all the natural systems to make a pretty you know garden
0: yeah.
1: how do you work with the natural systems and what naturally wants to rise there to end up producing food and fiber and fuel and other needs for for yourself and your family mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but that can then extend to farm level and landscape level as well where we're really thinking about you know the the patterns of nature what are those principles and patterns that nature expresses that we can learn from and employ in our efforts to feed ourselves and to live harmoniously with this planet. Permaculture has been around since the late 1970s and I definitely encourage people who are just thinking about trying to re-intertwine themselves with nature a little bit more, look into permaculture, take a permaculture design course. It's a two week
0: long introduction course and it's like a life changer for a lot of people. I remember looking at some permaculture diagrams where you know it seems like the homestead is built in concentric circles um in, in line with what you're saying about trying to design harmoniously with the natural flow of life with nature but that that often leads to these kind of concentric circles where the stuff that needs the least amount of management let's say like trees that only yield stuff and need pruning now and again are on the outside and then stuff mm-hmm. that needs close intimate management is is closer into where the humans are, where they're going to be living and staying. Is that is that kind of true or is that a bit of a oversimplification? Well, it's, it's both. I mean, it's oversimplification, but it, but it is. That's the zoning
1: system in permaculture. One of the biggest mistakes people make when they first take on a uh, you know, homesteading project or a farming project is that they think that you need to manage everything uh, really strongly. They end up like planning, you know, we're going to put it really intensive orchards everywhere. We're going to put really intensive gardens everywhere. And they just get completely overwhelmed.
0: Mm-hmm. So the
1: zoning system says, okay, we're gonna start one step out your kitchen door. What are you gonna plant right mm-hmm. there, right next to your kitchen? you know, you're gonna have your basil and your mm-hmm. and your coriander and your, you know, things that you can pick frequently for cooking. And then we're gonna expand out from there and we're gonna manage that zone one garden where all your veggies are that you're gonna be frequently harvesting from. We're gonna manage manage that very heavily, you know, visiting mm-hmm. it every day or multiple times a day and then we're going to expand out to something that has a little bit less management mm-hmm. and then out to your pastures with your animals then out to your you know timber and then and then what they call zone 5 is the wild area mm-hmm. and in a part of the vision of permaculture is that the, the actually the largest area is wild area mm-hmm. so if we could implement this across a watershed or across the planet we would have majority uh, wild area so that our ecology and our water systems and our animals can all have their space as well.
0: Sounds amazing. So then um, thanks for it. Thanks for just like clarifying that up. And so tell us about Regen Network then. What is it? Where are you at? What's going on?
1: Yep, absolutely. Um, so Regen Network is a full stack development software company that aims on developing the infrastructure for the for the commons, you know, really managing the commons. So, so what do I mean by that? Well, we have our atmosphere, you know, our climate, we have our oceans, we have our forests. In the current system, the way that those things are managed are through a bunch of disparate, disconnected, um, uh, closed silos of data and information. So that these different parties, you know, like the US government is trying to work with corporations who are trying to work with individuals and, and philanthropists and nonprofits, And each of them has their own understanding of what is actually happening in the ocean or in the atmosphere. Right. So, and then they try to come to agreements about how to engage with those places, which Mm -hmm. is totally, um, uh, does not work and clearly is not working for our atmosphere and our oceans and Mm -hmm. our, and our ecologies. Right. And I
0: guess in many times, I guess in many instances as well, not only are they, um, trying to, like, not only are they holding that data in a centralized way, like behind their closed doors, but they're protecting it. They want to charge for it. They want to make money and get a return from it or whatever. They're not necessarily capturing it for the common good. They might be capturing it for other reasons as well. Oftentimes, these
1: parties have adversarial adversarial relationships with each other as well. So not only are they protecting their data for profit, but they're also protecting their, their data because they have a particular outcomes they want to see. So mm-hmm. when a corporation is engaging with a government, you know, they're working with regulators, the government may be politicized in some way, you know, like as we're currently seeing, especially mm-hmm. here in the US, the, the EPA is, has particular outcomes that may differ from the outcomes that other parties are wanting to see. So they're each holding different uh, amounts of data, releasing only part, uh, parts of that data so they can argue their side of it. And this what this what what this has resulted in is ecological devastation on this planet. And it continues to result in that.
0: Yeah. How does the commons help with that then? So
1: if we are going to be making proper agreements about commons management, we need to have a infrastructure to interact on. So Mm. data interoperability. So there's transparency to the data of what's really happening, community governance of that infrastructure. So that if there is data and information coming through there, all parties can look at it and say, okay, none of the other parties that I'm adversarial with, are being able to, you know, alter or lever mm-hmm. what is happening inside of that community-governed uh, space.
0: So, when we're talking commons, I mean, often we hear commons referred to in terms of intellectual property so or cultural property, like items that have been generated out of society that now anyone can use because there's no, like, you don't have to pay to use it because it's in the commons. But you're referring to like... The natural commons—the the air and the seas and the the stuff that we all need in our ecology—you uh, mm-hmm. call it the ecological commons, or what? I mean, is the, and am I right? That's what you're referring to, right? Our natural resources that we all share and we all need to know about.
1: Absolutely, that's the one. That's the space that we are primarily focused on. But in the end, even our technological infrastructure becomes part of the commons. Mm. Right? So once we launch our SDK and our distributed ledger, that technological toolkit goes into the commons and becomes managed by a commons group where anyone can then participate in the governance of it if they have an interest in in participating. Mm -hmm. So yeah, natural commons is what we're focused on, but
0: but it goes beyond that. Interesting, okay, cool. What are the tools you're building and how far along are you and, and what are you trying to do next? There's two levels to what Regen Network
1: is building. First is that uh, commons development toolkit. We call call a software development toolkit, including a distributed ledger, including community governance, including data interoperability tools, et cetera. That set of tools can be used for many, many different applications. Mm -hmm. We've explored uh, insurance applications and banking applications, Mm -hmm. uh, government applications, and other things the first application that we're building on top of that toolkit is a carbon registry mm-hmm. and an ecosystem services registry so this is something that most of your viewers are probably at least somewhat familiar with this yep. carbon markets and carbon credits um, so the very first uh, application we're building is that and we've issued our first carbon credits for a regenerative agriculture ranch in new south wales australia It's called a Carbon Plus Grasslands Credit, and it measures carbon in the soil using satellite-powered remote sensing and minimal ground truth data. It measures animal welfare, uh, soil health, and ecosystem services at the same time.
0: Not wanting to go down the rabbit hole on this one, but how the hell do you manage animal welfare through a satellite?
1: Well, no, the satellite does not uh, manage animal welfare. The the animal welfare
0: is, is measured on the ground. Oh, got you, got you. I, was, I thought you had some crazy radar that looks like, I don't know, the internal workings of a cow. Just yeah, I wish. Yeah. <laughs> um, cool. So, so you're building out those tools and you've just done your first carbon credit project in New South Wales, which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. How long have you been in development with the platform then? Regen Network's
1: been uh, at this since April of 2018, so a little bit over two years now. We started really deeply uh, focused on what are the tools that can help us get out of this climate change mess, you know, not only in terms of carbon and greenhouse gases, but also in terms of biodiversity and all the social uh, harm that happens along with it, right? So um, starting at that point, focused on building the technological infrastructure that will allow many, many different applications to be engaged in real um deep world change efforts.
0: There must be a real strong guiding philosophy that kind of guides your ecosystem around the idea of prioritizing the commons and deprioritizing private interest groups, including governments, as the proprietors of that information. Would that be a unifying feature of what would help you decide whether or not you're going to do a project or not?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, this ties right in with the, with the new agreements concept, you know, that ultimately what we hope this tool can be is of service to our society, of service to individual human beings, of service to scientists, of service to even corporate entities and governments. It is a tool that they can use and utilize and trust and have others trust through which they can make agreements with various parties. Mm -hmm. so for example the the ranch in new south wales we are verifying the fact that over time they are increasing the resiliency and health of their landscape now someone else is then buying a carbon credit which is basically like saying i want to get into agreement with you about this Mm -hmm. if you create positive benefit for your landscape i would like to uh, uh, reward you financially for that and receive some sort of ecological offset that i can use for my company Mm -hmm. my company's ecological accounting." And that's one, one
0: example of an agreement. I'm interested in how you navigate the challenge of trying to advocate for the commons, but then holding your assets and your capital within a private company, is it? How do you navigate that? Like, what are you offering your investors as a return if ultimately your goal is to be of service to the commons? And it's a challenge many, many mission-driven organizations have to encounter. I'm just interested to know how you've engaged with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Um, so we have a for-profit company, Regen Network Development Incorporated. We have a non-profit uh, foundation that's associated with, the, with our work called Regen Foundation. Mm-hmm. And then we have a commons, uh, uh, development, which we just refer to as Regen Network. As uh-huh. That includes all sorts of validators, that includes uh, all sorts of uh, partners, various different stakeholders that may engage with Regen Ledger, which is the distributed ledger technology at the base of this. Right now, we're fundraising through a pri- private token sale mm-hmm. of our governing token of that commons technology. So if you were to buy uh, participate in the Regen Network uh, token sale, you would get Regen Tokens, which mm-hmm. gives you... Uh, the rights to participate in governments, and it gives you uh, the rights to block rewards and inflation mechanisms on the chain itself. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not actually investing into our for-profit company. Mm-hmm. You're investing into the development of the commons.
0: Have you raised finance into the not-for-profit or into the private company in the past?
1: We've raised about just over $2 million total in our total fundraising. Uh, only about 150,000 of that has been money that we've raised for our for-profit uh, entity. Some of the money that we're raising through the Commons is then going to be endowed into the foundation right at the launch of our of our chain,
0: mm-hmm. uh, so
1: that the foundation can then, in a very uh, arms reach way, and help facilitate the workings of the of the Commons technology.
0: And is the chain live now?
1: The chain is not live yet. We've run a number of test nets. Our last test net had 75 validators on it and it was extremely successful in terms of offering value to the Cosmos community. Our main net is aiming to launch in February of
0: 2021. Awesome. How much are you trying to raise on from your token sale?
1: Yeah, we have another $4 million that we're targeting over the next six months or so.
0: And, and are people allowed to put in 10 bucks or is it like minimum investments? Uh, there's a minimum investment
1: size of $5,000. Okay. If, so they then stake their tokens on a validator. Mm-hmm. And then with that stake, they are uh, able to participate in governance. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's a governance decision that comes up, uh, you get pinged on your app and you are able to put in your vote, depending on the amount of stake that you have.
0: I mean, that's all like the technical side of what it is and and how it all fits together corporately. One of my biggest questions, problems, issues with carbon credit systems in the UK, at least these gold standard systems, they're all talking about, they basically sell futures for stuff that isn't real today. In my head, it's fine to do futures if we have a future, but if you're not sure if (laughs) we have a future, um, and also, it's fine to do futures if we have a future and the person who's buying them knows they're buying a future. Sure. Yeah. For those listening, like when I say a future, I mean you pay to offset something and you think it's in the ground now. You think that work is done, but really that tree might take or that square meter of soil might take 60 years to capture the carbon that you're getting credited for now. And so I think a little bit of futures makes sense, but like sure. proportion to the problem we have. So maybe like five years ahead or maybe 10 years at a push, I wouldn't mm-hmm. do it, mm-hmm. but I could do three to five years. I don't know what your policy on your platform is, but how do you think about that? And, and have you experienced something similar?
1: Yeah, well, you're getting at some of the, some of the key misinformation and opacity problems that the carbon markets have. Most people, like if you were to say, hey, I want to offset all the carbon for my entire podcast, you know, and then you go somewhere to buy the carbon credits. You have you have literally no idea what you're buying. Often, You got some credits. uh, Supposedly, it represents some carbon somewhere. Most likely that carbon that it represents is actually just carbon reduction credits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some giant factory somewhere made a little efficiency on their smokestack. And it was releasing less carbon into the atmosphere than they would have otherwise, and they got issued carbon credits.
0: Yeah, so no actual molecules got put back in the ground. It was just less than they had predicted originally.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so you're supporting a less bad world (laughs) with that purchase, which (laughs) is good. I mean, (laughs) it's not that exciting, though. (laughs) That's right. You know, at Regen Network, we're really focused on nature-based solutions and the carbon sequestration out of the atmosphere into the soil and into living systems, you know, what we call living carbon. The other piece that you're really focused on is, with your question, is transparency. You know, if you were to offset the carbon for your podcast, you could have on your website, like, hey, here's my little portfolio of carbon offsets. Someone could click into them and get a nice, beautiful page about what the story behind that carbon credit, and then they could click into that and actually get the data behind it. Mm -hmm. You know, what was the methodology that was used? How do we know that that actually happened? What does it actually represent? And that goes for what we call uh, ex post credits, which is credits that are based off of carbon that was sequestered this last year. Mm -hmm. But it all, and it also goes for ex anti credits, which is carbon that's based in the future. Mm -hmm. But in either case, the clear and open transparency of that agreement is really, really important for you and for the people that you're saying that you've offset your carbon to.
0: Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong about selling a long future on something, but not to be confused with something that was post, you know, and already the work already being done. With all of that said, and I couldn't agree more that the transparency and empowering people to make their own choices about that is the priority, and that's what makes it good. Having said that, within your app, how does it how does it all work and what view do you take on that?
1: We have a project page for each of our projects. Uh, which describes in detail the site itself, the ranchers themselves, the cows themselves, how they're moved about, what what management strategies do they use. It shows some photos of the landscape. It has some of the technical science uh, behind the positive ecological changes, so the carbon sequestration rates. In in the case of this one site, they've gone from 2% carbon to 4.5% carbon in their soil over time. They've planted thousands of trees. They've re uh, rehabilitated the waterway that runs through their site. I mean, wow. tons of beautiful um, beautiful stats. Then we have a whole documentation section, which is much more dry. What exactly was the methodology? How exactly does it work? How do we calculate the GHG emissions? But for some people, that's what they need to see. And so that needs to be there as well. Anytime anyone who bought one of those carbon credits wants to Display to anyone else what they are involved in in terms of carbon sequestration, they can easily do that.
0: Mm-mm-mm. And so right now, where we where we sit today on the 19th of August, what is the main thing you, as the CEO, are trying to like move forwards on, get over the hill? Are you trying to raise cash? Are you desperate for new projects? Like, what are you? It's always like a supply and demand thing, isn't it? we got yeah, loads of sure. customers but we don't have anyone to grow anything or we've got those but we need investment like what's your biggest challenge right now you're solving we have
1: so many good connections with farmers and ranchers that want to get paid for their ecological impact they're lined up and ready to go we have a huge spreadsheet of projects that would that are ready to come on board and get paid for ecological impact what we need is the other side of that two-sided marketplace mm-hmm. uh, we need more companies that are interested in purchasing innovative carbon credits mm-hmm. to offset and to meet their uh, carbon neutrality goals. Mm-hmm. Any of those folks out there that are listening in, if you run a company or you know someone who would be interested in, in investing into innovative carbon credits,
0: mm-hmm. please
1: send them our way. We'd love to chat with them.
0: Sweet. Well, and just as a, just to get practical for a second, like with, with my business, which I don't really talk about on here very often, or I don't think I have talked about it at all, but because mm-hmm. it's practical, I will, which is, our carbon we help small businesses who want to do good to um to like figure out what their carbon emissions are to reduce what they can Mm -hmm. and then to offset what they can't and then set Mm -hmm. goals and get better over time and one of the things we reward them for is getting better data over time because we have a evidence quality score we stack it all up against the the ghg standards and we did the iso training which has all that sort of standard methodology in it and so we try and get them to be better at capturing the data in their in their accounting effectively and then we try and sell them premium quality offsets that they can't avoid and we do that currently with our friends called the future forest company up in Scotland Mm -hmm. who are doing Mm -hmm. really good work I would never buy an offset for my clients that that I don't know where it is it would be can you answer these questions where is it how do I know you haven't sold it to anybody else And can I see it, please? If I can't see it, then I can't verify that it's not already done. And if you can't prove to me that you haven't sold it to anybody else, or like I'm not satisfied that this is a permanent record in a way that would be verifiable, then I wouldn't be happy. So for me, those three questions need satisfying. I guess my question is, if I wanted to stipulate that I only wanted to buy post credits on the Regen network, can I make that requirement? Absolutely. So
1: again, we're early on in this case. The the first project that we issued is ex post uh credits only. It is post. Um, it is, yeah.
0: Hey, okay, that's good. That's, we can
1: and in the future we hope to have all these filters that you can like filter for the place that you want credits from, the type of credit, you know, what kind of agricultural system is it? Is it, you know, is it ex post or ex ante? Um, and the corporation could then filter for everything that they want and then out would pop, you know, these three projects fit your filter.
0: So if I paid $20 for a ton of CO2E offset from your New Southwest Wales farm through your platform, uh-huh. how much money would they get? How much money would you get? The aim for our company is
1: to try to shift the balance here. So as you know, and a lot of your viewers probably don't know, when a carbon credit is purchased by a party, only about, in some cases, 20%, but usually between 20 and 40% uh, percent ends up in the hands of the people that actually sequestered the carbon or, re- or did the production themselves. Mm-hmm. In our platform, we're trying to fl- flip that. So that we get somewhere around 70 to 80% of the final payment cost of the credit into the hands of the land stewards themselves. And the reason we're so interested in that is not because we care so much about those farmers and the farmers' families and those rural communities, which we do, yeah. but because we want their friends to participate. yeah, We yeah. want all those other farmers who haven't yet switched to regenerative agriculture to be mm. like, oh, wow. I actually think I could make more money if I, switch practices and start getting paid for my ecological regeneration at the same time
0: sweet why did you choose from the bay area i mean obviously your trees are at risk of getting burnt down there but they're at risk of getting burnt down in australia too why did you go to australia for your first farmer
1: yeah i mean to be honest with you our remote sensing technology allows us to do this anywhere in the world without flying anywhere nice so yeah, we, we have a Ph.D. remote sensing scientist that um, is building algorithms, building methodologies for us to be able to tell what's actually happening on the ground. In this case, this group called Impact Ag Partners in Australia approached us and said, hey, we've been trying to work with the Australian Carbon Credit Units program with the, with the Australian government. And it is so expensive. It is such a headache. It's so laborious. And we're not even sure if we're going to come out the other end with getting an approval for this, even though we've raised carbon rates from 2% to 45 and we continue to, they said, could we work with you guys to issue our first, uh, issue these credits? And they've been incredible partners working with us as an early adopter on a platform. Um, you know, we're still figuring out, you know, the details of a lot of these things, the whole legalities and everything. And yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's been, it's been great to work with them. And it was a perfect setup for both of us.
0: Are you seeing yourselves as a bit of an alternative to a gold standard or vera type process for people that want to produce and measure and then sell their carbon there's two layers to that to to answer that question first yes if you're thinking
1: about our carbon credits themselves Mm -hmm. our grasslands uh you know carbon plus grasslands methodology is an alternative to some of the methodologies that vera or gold standard are putting out there Mm -hmm. Uh, it reduces the cost of baselining it reduces the barriers to entrance for farmers Etc. It's got a lot of value in that way. So yes. On the other hand, we are also a potential um, technology provider for both gold standard and Vera. Mm -hmm. So we have connections with them. We have ongoing conversations with both of those companies and maybe that we end up offering uh, our open source infrastructure for them to, to build on top of, to help create transparency around the fact that their credits are not double counted and that, you know, the provenance of these things is really clear.
0: I'm with I'm with you on that. I guess I did mean the first part, which was like from the farmer's perspective. I have a I have some land. Oh no, Vera's ten grand to get verified. If I'm like I got a field, dude, let's grow some trees and do some shit. Sure, sure. What, is it prohibitive for me as a farmer? What do I have to pay you? Or what, how does how does it work? I'll tell you about well, this one project in New South Wales, Australia, it's a
1: 2,000 hectare holistic management uh, grazing operation. If they were to go through the conventional carbon credit routes, uh, they're going to be asked to do 200 to 300 soil samples on site so that they can then average those soil samples and get an estimate for what the carbon is in the soil to set a baseline. And then two or three years later, they're going to do that again. Mm-hmm. Soil samples cost somewhere around $200 to $300 a piece to, to take and then send to the lab. So we're talking about $40,000 to $90,000 just to baseline. With Regen Network, we ha- use an order of magnitude less soil samples. So we're using maybe 25 soil samples. Mm-hmm. And then we're using remote sensing uh, verification and extrapolation from there to set the baseline. So we're talking more like fifteen grand of cost of baseline monitoring uh, versus
0: Seventy-five grand. And if you don't mind me asking, who agrees with you that that methodology for getting baseline sampling is good enough that this satellite thing does nine tenths of the work of a standard Vera methodology? Who who is it that agrees with you? I'm sure someone does.
1: Sure. Yeah, we've talked with a lot of different scientists. We've we're having we're in the midst of a public review right now of our methodology. We were incubated by the Nature Conservancy uh, in the fall of this last year, and. When we told them about what we were doing, they were a little like, ah, that sounds like a pie in the sky dream. And when we showed them the data, they were like, wow, this is awesome. And we need to get more data sets to to corroborate this.
0: It's really exciting to see other groups with other energy getting into this basically. And and with a good sense of steam and momentum behind you, it sounds like you guys have achieved a ton already. So I feel heartened just listening and sharing energy in this conversation
1: absolutely david when we're sequestering carbon into natural systems we want to make sure that we're not fragmenting the story of regeneration into a story of carbon mm. because there is a way in which we could sequester all the carbon we need out of the atmosphere and we would still live on a planet that is destroyed yeah right this is an opportunity right now for us to sequester the carbon in such a way that also creates a huge amount of co-benefits mm-hmm. so water quality benefits animal health benefits uh, social health benefits, you know, nut- food nutrition, et cetera. The list goes on and on and on, and that's why natural systems are the best way for us to be sequestering carbon right now.
0: Mm, no, I totally agree. And out of interest, in your, I mean, you're buying and selling carbon credits. Do you set minimum standards on governance for the other qualities that are, you're interested in? If Regen Network's interested in water quality and biodiversity and other things that go in, mm-hmm. do you have like a yeah, do you say, hey, hang on, we're not going to do this carbon credit project with you guys over in Canada because your methodology clearly doesn't care about water quality and we think it would have a negative effect, so we're not doing it?
1: Yeah, that's right. We have created rubrics through which we want to be able to measure the reg- regeneration of the landscape. And ultimately, we would love to see the entire market of carbon credits move towards a regeneration index rather than just a purely fragmented carbon uh, index and we're trying to push that forward. At this moment, it's not hard for us to be picky about our projects because we have so many farmers and ranchers that want to work with us. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to start with the ones that are the most inspiring and producing the most holistic health.
0: Although investors, there's a bit of trickiness around who you can take investment from. Any company in any country, any person in any country could buy stuff from your platform, could buy carbon credits from your platform. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yep. That. Yeah, they're, they're
1: voluntary carbon offsets and just in the voluntary markets, just like Vera and gold standard are. Mm-hmm. So maybe besides those countries that have like international embargoes or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the most part. That's right. All right. So we got super into the detail there and that's uh, very satisfying and enjoyable for me. But let's zoom out for a second, back out to like the whole world. where We're actually at kind of semi post Corona, not quite post. I wish we were. Um, thinking about this decade and, and Trump and governance and everything else going on to fit into the wider story of new agreements. Why are you doing what you're doing, really? And why is it important? And and what bigger agreement is it that you really think we should all be just signing up to for our survival, for our thriving? You know, have a go at that. Stick that in your sure. pocket. it. <laughs>
1: Well, man, we need new agreements. What is happening on this planet right now is not working. It's not working for our ecology. It's not working for the millions of different species that have gone extinct over the last couple hundred years. It's not working for human beings. And to be honest, it's not working for the wealthy human beings or the poor human beings. So it's especially not working for the poor human beings. There is so much obesity. There's so much depression. There's so much suicide. There still continues to be wars. And now there's pandemics that we can expect to see more of. These things are all connected together. You know, the justice issue has come up, racial justice, sexual justice, has all come up, uh, flared up recently, and it's all the same story. Mm-hmm. You know, these are not different things that each need their own answers to them. This is all one thing. One of the assumptions that we make is that that I don't think that our government, our our governments are the answers, mm-hmm. you know, we have tried to put a bunch of stock in them and trusted them for a long time. And this is where it's gotten us. Mm-hmm. Right. So yes, I'm still going to vote. I'm still going to be trying to push for good legislation that could be helpful, but it's really in the hands of the people. And yep. we now have the technology to be able to allow the people to communicate with each other within a clear way to create clear and transparent agreements with each other, to, to do uh, citizen-led science that can really lead towards positive outcomes, and to create financial mechanisms that, that incentivize the shift of operations from a degradatory practice to a regenerative practice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the new agreements for from my perspective in the future are
0: peer-to-peer and commons-focused. Uh, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. So you're still going to be a tax paying US citizen, you're going to still going to comply, but you're going to be putting more time and energy into these peer to peer networks. Is that that is that the right way to think of it?
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, particularly talking about our company, our company is going to maintain compliance with governance. Uh, in the end, if we can command the respect of various governments around the world, that's going to be helpful for the process of uh, implementing and bringing a- about this technology in a quicker route. Mm-hmm. Uh, legislation is still very powerful, even if I don't believe it's the end all to actually getting us to the world that we want to see. No,
0: I'm so chuffed to hear what you're saying, Christian. and. This just frankly feels like an introduction conversation, and I hope that we will have a part two and a part three tracking the journey, really, because it has to be a journey over a number of years of seeing this stuff develop and watching the power of peer-to-peer networks go beyond just voice of social media into decision-making and capital allocation. And I'm very thankful that you guys are pretty far ahead, to be honest with you. Like, that's you're, mm. you've done really well, I'm ch- chuffed to hear about it and I'm really enjoying this first conversation I hope we can talk again and expand more on some of these doors that we've opened today hopefully you'll be open to that
1: absolutely thanks so much for having me on I really respect your your podcast and the work that you're doing David
0: oh thanks so much dude have a great day and hopefully we'll see you again maybe even on this podcast and oh just very quickly what links should people go to if they want to become an investor or sign up follow the journey buy some carbon credits Sure. Check out www.regen.network.
1: That's R-E-G-E-N.network.
0: Amazing. And I'll follow up with you and we'll get some links in the description below so people can uh, do some of the learning if different bits piqued their attention that they weren't aware of. Perfect. Thank you so much.